Okay, that's us ready to go. We're kicking things off. Welcome to episode 199, weirdly enough, of Together BHA, the big 200 next time around. Shame you couldn't join us for that one, Ben, but we are joined uh, by Mr. Ben Jacobs. Ben, how are you? Very good. I'm worried now. 199 not out. And if it doesn't go well, if it is well received, maybe you don't get to 200 and it's all my fault. <laughs> well, you know, here's the good thing, because we're not joined by Josh again, because uh, we, we mentioned before we went live is his the, the Internet gods didn't bless him just yet with his new home setup. So we can just blame Josh uh, for, for not being here. So, so we're absolutely fine. Uh, I'm joined as usual by Craig. Craig, how are you? Good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, had a nice, nice little weekend. That was a hell of a game that we just watched as well in in other in other areas. So uh, yeah, how, what about yourself, Adam? How are you? Good. I mean, I felt a little bit. Uh, it was a bit horrid seeing Trossard come on and then be <laughs> a factor in that winning goal. In the sense that, like, I, I wish him all the best, but also not that much. Uh, and I'd rather have not seen that happen. But <laughs> it was weird seeing him in an Arsenal shirt. I'll be honest with you. Um, we're going to kick things off with, uh, you know, we're very privileged to have Ben join us here. Um, ben, I was, I was thinking about how to introduce you, and I'm actually going to take one of your tweets that you put out recently as a reply to someone, because I was going to maybe say journalist, transfer guru, but I liked your response to someone recently, which was sometimes I do transfer news, sometimes I do. <laughs> so I think that's probably the best summary. You are transfer news guru and sometimes vibes. I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, then that would be a fair description. But what perhaps people don't realise is that I'm staff at CBS. I'm a standard journalist. I cover transfer windows. But traditionally, it's been the business of sports. So the windows get all of the attention. And Twitter, obviously, if you're outside of the US and you don't follow the broadcasts on CBS tend to glean a lot of what people perceive you to be in terms of voice or knowledge or areas of speciality. But in essence, I've been a football commentator, a writer and a broadcaster for well over a decade now. And I have oscillated, I suppose, between takeovers, especially when they have got either a Middle East or an American pertinence. Chelsea was the latest, but I was across, for example, the Newcastle United Saudi takeover as well. And then, as ever, all people really want to know, regardless of any insight, regardless of any profound thoughts about the business <laughs> of sport, is just who on earth is my side either signing or selling. And that's probably what creates a bit of a false perception across social media. So Transfer Guru is a nice, I suppose, tag, but it's certainly not the only thing that I do. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, by the way, because I think for a lot of, especially for Brighton fans, we've been collectively fairly starved maybe is the best way of describing it of um having sort of accurate representation of news around the club we've got some journalists that uh, have been around the club for a long time i won't bring them up by name but they do a great job but what they don't do i guess is maybe talk beyond what we kind of get out of the club uh and that's where it's been refreshing to have some insights that have been delivered by you and some others out there and, and you've kind of come onto our radar in, in recent memory but again you know, I think you've, I've saw you've done some interviews with some absolutely, uh, you know, massive footballers and even outside of football as well. So it's a pretty storied career thus far. So thank you again for joining us. Um, you're a Leicester fan. What do you think of the game <laughs> yesterday? I knew it was going to head in a negative direction. <laughs> also, I'll give you an answer. 
with my journalist hat on rather than my Leicester fan perspective. But in essence, it's one of those strange games because I'm sure if you're a Brighton fan, you find yourself celebrating the late Ferguson equaliser. But if you look at the context of the game, Brighton were worthy winners. So you can argue it in a number of ways. Leicester fans might say they were 2-1 up with a couple of minutes left and therefore they're disappointed not to have won the game. But I view it away from that fan-led perspective, more along the lines of Brighton dominated the game and the possession. They'll be relatively disappointed with the Leicester goals, especially the first one, because at any time a team allows not one, not two, but three shots to come in, they're always going to point fingers as to why the ball wasn't cleared. But Brighton had the vast majority of the possession away from home I think they look more threatening. They had more shots on goal. They had more attempts on target. Leicester scored two goals. They only had two shots on target, which tells you that they were not necessarily their traditional threat in seasons gone by. And this, unfortunately, has been Leicester all over this season under Brendan Rodgers. Right. They've conceded floppy goals. They've surrendered a lot of possession. It's fine under Brendan Rodgers not having the majority of possession, but they're creeping into what I would term Claudio Ranieri territory, where they would have 25 to 35% possession instead of in the early 40s. And although that shouldn't make a massive amount of difference if you want to play on the counter-attack, Leicester have got enough quality when people are fit to be playing on the front foot. And against Brighton, they didn't do that. They surrendered the ball and ultimately they got punished. So I think from Leicester's point of view, it might be a valuable point in the context of a season where they're flirting with relegation. But Brighton, I think, were the better side, the worthier winners if there was to be one and therefore that late equaliser was very much deserved and I think if you then flip it and look at it from Roberto De Zerbi's perspective he'll obviously have a big issue with the opening Marco Brighton goal the Harvey Barnes finish was very good but when you won nil up away from home in a game and it was an excellent Mitoma finish from there they maybe could have put their foot on the throttle a bit more to try and kill off the game. They didn't. Leicester got back into it. Scrappy build-up for that equaliser. And then there was just that period where they had to weather a storm. And then when Leicester get ahead, it's got a completely different complexion on the game. But I think that overall, it's just very clear under De Zerbi that games are not being given up on, that mm. they play quite open on the road that there's a lot of grit and character which has spilled over from the Graham Potter era. And then to see a youngster like Ferguson get a late winner that was also very well taken, that's encouraging as well. So I think that in the same way that for Leicester, it was an encouraging point in the context of the season, but a discouraging point in the context of being 2-1 up and then not winning it so late on in the game. But in hindsight, you might well say you only just stayed up by the skin of your teeth and therefore not losing to Brighton benefits you. And similarly with Brighton and the run of fixtures that they've got coming up now, I feel like they will take that point and move up to sixth in the table and now look at the next four or five games that are ahead and think they're actually very winnable. And if they can sustain a run of form now and stay unbeaten, they'll find themselves towards the back end of the season with a very strong opportunity of at worst improving on last season's record finish in the Premier League and at best qualifying for European football. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you've, you've clearly watched a decent chunk of Brighton there to be able to make some of those assessments as well. And I mean, the one bit I'll say is that uh, the unfortunate thing is it might look like we've got a nice run of fixtures, but that is typically our death knell 
uh, because <laughs> we'd rather face the sides where we go in and say we've got no chance here and end up winning. Whereas we'll, we'll play a game like Leicester where it's, God, you, we, we've got a 3-0 win against Liverpool. We go and play Leicester who are in dire straits at the moment. And for all intents and purposes, without that ball in from Mesty Pinion and that glancing header from a, from a very impressive young Evan Ferguson, we walk away from that game with nothing. So yeah, I agree with you. It was, a, it was a very weird one. Craig and I are going to do our standard kind of deep dive once we've um, had a conversation with you and we'll dig into all the meat of it. But I think you probably already endeared yourself a little bit more to some Brighton fans there by saying that we arguably should have got the three points there. Um, uh, Paul Barber, you interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. What did you make of the man? Very impressed by Paul Barber, not just in that interview, but with previous dealings as well. And also talking to people around the game who very much feel like he's not only an excellent fit for Brighton and has been very loyal to the club and obviously got an OBE recently as well for his services to football. But he understands the model and does so, I think, in a very level-headed and engaging manner. And by that, I mean, when you have a club like Brighton and you want to improve on the football field, but you accept that sometimes you have to lose players, the fans can over time get quite irritated and annoyed by that, that no progress is being made. And when you go all the way back now, 18 months or so, to a period where the club lost Dan Ashworth, who was very important and is now doing well at Newcastle, and then these Chelsea poachers, if you like, from Graham Potter. (laughs) We've said similar words, maybe. Yep to Paul and Stanley, and you wonder whether the fabric of the club in terms of the infrastructure and the hierarchy behind the scenes are going to change negatively. But you're left with these two constants, and that is obviously the owner in Tony Bloom and Paul Barber. And I think that they maintain this ability to manage not just the football side through, of course, the coaching staff, but also the culture. And that's really important because Mm. ultimately when you have a consistent behind the scenes strategy and model that can be sustainable, even if key personnel leave, then you get to a scenario where even with wholesale change, and it couldn't have got really any more dramatic in terms of the hierarchy in the last 18 months or so, the club can still move in the right direction. And I think that's brilliant when you consider that Graham Potter was moving the club emphatically in the right direction, a record ninth place finish. And I think back to the other game just before he left at home to Leicester where Brighton won 5-2 and they look so dynamic and enterprising. And then when you not only view that form, but also look at the age and the talent and the manner in which replacements have been able to come in first and actually step up and relatively quickly to the point where it's business as usual even with a lot of different moving parts, most of them in the examples that I've given, leaving Brighton rather than coming in. And I think one classic example of that is actually Esther Pinion, who has been excellent for Brighton. I think he got both the assists against Leicester. He was signed, Mark Kukurea left, and now he's a constant in the side. He's playing very well. And again, as I said before, it's business as usual. But The difference to the business rather than the business as usual on the football field is that £62 million, if all the add-ons are paid, have gone into the bank, which allows Brighton to be very healthy 
not only in hopefully from their perspective, hanging on to key stars, but also if they need to at some point investing a bit more money on the transfer side. And this is what is going to be the most intriguing thing for me if they make European football, because then the model has to change to some extent. And it's kind of paradoxical mm-hmm. because on the one hand, you know that you're going to have to spend some of that money. But on the other hand, you can't budget and plan for that eventuality every season. So you don't want to break your model entirely. And therein lies the paradox, the need to invest to succeed in Europe and also sustain bigger squads will be necessary, more fixtures versus the fact that it could for many clubs in the Premier League, not just Brighton, only be a one-off. So you want to be ambitious, you want to be front-facing, you want to enjoy it, you want to bring in quality that will improve you in the long term and piggyback off European qualification if it happens, but you also don't want to go against your model. And that's where Paul Barber's advice and Tony Bloom's ambition are going to be very important. And the thing to understand about Paul Barber is that he does everything on his terms. So other clubs will look in at Brighton and perhaps bill them as a little bit more of a selling club or a team that is perceived by the big six or seven, if we include Newcastle, as one that they can climb above. But within Brighton, the level of structure, the level of strategy, and now I think the level of football as well at the moment is definitely making waves within many top Premier League clubs because everyone's seeing that they're a sustainable football club, they're a money-making football club, and they're a very enterprising and exciting football team. And this is what makes the story at the moment very much like a fairy tale. It's not yet comparable to Team Leicester winning the Premier League, but it's not far off if they get into Europe and then were able to somehow build from there or sustain their place in the top six. And Paul Barber is a very open, frank and engaging character who gets the fabric of the football club and the strategy and won't be held to ransom on anything, which means if we do get a scenario, and we'll come to it no doubt later, where Moises Caicedo goes either in this window or in the summer, it's on Brighton's terms. When Mark Kukurea went to Chelsea, they got an incredible fee to the point where Liverpool, who had shown a vague interest windows before, and then Manchester City, who were the main suitor when Chelsea eventually came in, were drawing the line at under £40 million. And somehow Brighton got potentially, if all fees are paid, £62 million. And that just shows you once again that Brighton do everything on their terms. So the most striking thing for me, even though perhaps it wasn't the most headline worthy from the interview that I did with Paul Barber, it's very rare, by the way, to have someone in his position speak mid-window. But what I uh, took yeah, yeah. was when he said, We're not planning on doing anything in January. We see January as a seller's market, not a buyer's market. And we don't really want to get rid of anybody. We don't really want to rock the boat. We just want to keep things as is. And it's that stability, especially compared to the last 18 months of upheaval, especially changes behind the scenes, including, of course, a manager on the football side that maybe Brighton are trying to move away from now mid-season. If they can just keep everything together, even if it's for only one more window, think what that might do to the club, because it could be the difference between qualifying for Europe and not. And I think Paul Barber gets that and is therefore going to be very astute with how he handles the next two weeks or so of the transfer window. Less, of course, now, but that's going to be key because the next few days will define 
what Brighton have going into the second half of the season. And if right. it's a Caicedo-less Brighton, if it's a McAllister-less Brighton, if it's a Rob Sanchez-less Brighton, especially now Trossard's gone as well, that's going to make a massive amount of difference because there's no real time at this point left in the window to get that like-for-like replacement, which is why it wouldn't remotely surprise me if Brighton stick to their guns, especially with Caicedo, the other two almost certain to stay. There's no offers or interest that is in any way advanced for them. But with Caicedo, obviously, Chelsea are still pushing. So we have to wait and see. But I think the short answer, not that I really ever give one, is that (laughs) Brighton are in safe hands with Paul Barber. And I was very impressed by him. Wonderful. Craig, you want to jump in with a question? No, it was was more just around, I guess there's, the fan perception side of things as well. Obviously, we're hearing about it from a, a journalist side of things and you had the pleasure of talking with them. I think it's, it's almost sort of backed up to an extent that we don't do a lot of business in a January transfer window. And I think that's obviously being told from the top, but also what we're perceiving as fans and the supporters of the club too. Um, so I guess that's that's one of the things is that, and, and as we move on to the transfer talk, and, uh, and I'm sure we will, it is more that... We don't anticipate too much action to happen during January anymore because we're almost preconditioned to that fact for the last few seasons. And so when we do talk about this January transfer window and what is happening, what might potentially happen, what we don't want to happen, what we're categorically saying no to, um, is that the general premise is is that if you let someone like a Trossard go, that really nothing else is going to happen Um, because we we know Tony Bloom to an extent doesn't like doing buyer's work in in the January transfer market Um, and and therefore there's a a demand and supply function there where actually we don't want to sell either. So um, I think, and and I'm not going to speak for for everyone that listens to this podcast and everyone that's tuned in, um, but typically we don't see major activity during this market and we've already seen one starter go in, in Trossard so mm. um, I guess it's almost backed up by by the the barber conversation and to, to that extent that we we're not expecting too much else to happen but but again part of uh, social media and, and everything like that is is that actually there's a lot of talk about things may potentially happening um, especially around Caicedo which seems like as Adam put it at the top of the pod, the, the talk of the town. Um, but I think for, for some people, and uh, the I guess the attention that it's getting is that the fees that we're talking about and the calibre of player that we now hold at this club is that actually this is now the biggest transfer that can happen for the rest of the window. Um, so obviously that gets maybe a higher level of attention by, by certain journalists and certain um, people that are that are expected to to look at this from a journalist perspective. Um, but also we need to bear that in mind as well, that actually this is the highest story or the highest sort of calibre player that is expected or at least rumoured to move at this point. Um, so I guess moving on to that, and you can tell I like talking as well, Ben, but um, it's uh, very much a case of, you know, the, the current predicament with Caicedo, knowing full well that Brighton don't want to sell, is that what is what is the story of this transfer window and what maybe are you expecting to happen in the next eight or so days? Well, I think the first thing to say, as I've reported very consistently, is that Brighton don't want to sell, but there may come a point and more specifically a price where it's in their interest. And if they do so, it will be entirely on their terms. And when Brighton consider a mid-season sale in particular, they're looking at a variety of things. Is there opportunism in the market to get the best possible deal? Does the player want to leave? Is the price right? And if everything, and I do mean everything, is right for Brighton, 
then they would sell in January. But right now, there's nothing right for Brighton because they've got a player that they want to keep. They're challenging for European football. The price that Chelsea have offered so far is nowhere near their valuation. And therefore, there won't be any progress at this point. So it's about Chelsea tabling effectively an astronomical offer. And sometimes we can get caught up in the number because it's out there. And ultimately, we as journalists are part of that. We speak to sources. We get a true valuation of what might tip the scales in terms of a sale. And therefore, there can become a skewed perception that somehow it's just going to get done. A number will be hit without reminding ourselves that the number we're talking about is massive. So not only do Chelsea have to pay that, but if that number is hit, then Brighton would be sensible to cave and let Moises Caicedo go in the next 10 days or so. And the reason for that is because if he becomes available in the summer market, yes, you could make an argument that the value is somewhat protected and there'll be more interest, but there'll only be interest in Moises Caicedo from, say, Liverpool, for example, if the price drops significantly because they don't even see value around the 55 or 60 at the top end mark. Therefore, if Brighton won 80 or more, there's a massive difference between that. And on top of that, we're not only talking about the number, I say this many times on shows, but the structure as well. So it isn't only about hitting 75 million plus or 80 million potentially. It's also about the guaranteed fee, the payment structure. Everything would have to be significantly in Brighton's favour in order to tip the scales to convince the club to sell. So Chelsea have got a lot of work to do. And right now they've placed a singular formal bid. I understand that it's somewhere in the region of 55 million with add-ons on top. And Chelsea's valuation in terms of what they believe to be doable or reasonable is around 65 million. But Brighton are no mugs. They're going to use the Mudrick fee as a yardstick. They're going mm. to use the Kukurea deal as a yardstick, which might seem strange because they're different players in different positions, but it isn't really about comparing a like-for-like player. It's about saying, why did you invest in an incredible but raw young talent who hasn't played in the Premier League in an area where you don't desperately need to strengthen? And if you've gone down that approach to the tune of 88 million quid then in an area where you desperately do need to strengthen and want to revamp and you're getting a young player, you have to pay a like-for-like kind of fee because Caicedo has proven Premier League experience. He can slot straight in. He's played under Graham Potter before. Chelsea desperately need a central midfielder, a defensive midfielder or a box-to-box midfielder. And somebody that young gives them longevity over time. So it might become valuable at that rate for Chelsea, much like Mudrick over four or five seasons. But right now you've got to pay above the odds. And what Brighton have to weigh up is if, and it's still a massive if, Chelsea were to come somewhere around the 75 million mark for a total package, is that 20 or more million with a preferable structure than they're going to get at the end of the season. And if they think it is, there may be a temptation to cash in because let's not forget that that would be a profit of, if it was 75 million, around 70 million based on Moises Caicedo. But it won't only come down to the money. It will also come down to whether the player 
for example, wants to leave at this point or has a desire to play more Premier League games starting every week and challenging for European football. It will also come down to Roberto De Zerbi, who's obviously got a different perspective to Graham Potter, is newer and might want to put his foot down after Leandro Trossard has left. And that's another key point in all of this. Once one's gone out, do you only think about the football side and the time left in the window and say, yikes, we definitely don't want to lose another senior player with so little time left in the window? And then the final thing you'd say is, is there somebody else out there that could be bought quickly and is available on the market who would be a like-for-like replacement for Caicedo? And we know, for example, that the young Swedish player is coming in, but you wouldn't quite call that like-for-like, maybe in the future, and they're both midfielders, but they're not identical in how they play or profile. And also, one has now lots of Premier League games, and the other's going to take a season or two to bed in. But there are central or defensive midfielders. I'm not saying that all of these names are exactly the same as Caicedo, but they're similar positions. There's Onahi, who Napoli wants and Leeds want. He's available on the market in the final few days of the window. Scott McTominay could even be available potentially. Don't put that on us. Hear these things. (laughs) People are going to obviously snub and say, well, why would you go down that line? Because none of them are Caicedo. We've got Caicedo. We're flying at the moment in the league. And that might well be Brighton's perspective. So we shouldn't rule out no sale. That's the first thing to say. Because Brighton's stance is it will have to be something incredible. But we have to also make it clear for balance that Chelsea are pushing. And as I said before, in my interview, but also in conversations with sources, so this isn't just from Paul Barber, it's been made clear at the club end that if the right offer is hit and Moises Caicedo says, I want to go now, the club will understand that. And as a consequence, if it is right for, and Barber said this part on record, player and club, then a sale could still happen. So really, the ball is just in Chelsea's court now. They can't mess around. They don't have time left in the window. They can't table 55 million guaranteed. That will get laughed out of the room at this point. So they're going to have to put a Mudrick-like offer down, I would say, minimum to even have a conversation with Paul Barber and Tony Bloom, 70 to 75 million. It might even be 80. And the other thing to say is that I don't think Brighton will over-negotiate this. So you get two kinds of negotiations in a deal. One is where you realise it's heading towards a deal. And that was the case with Chelsea when they signed Wesley Fofana from Leicester. So eventually after earlier offers were rebuffed, The later offers had a lot of verbal back and forth and finessing around the deal. So there was a real encouragement from Chelsea that a deal would get done. Whereas ultimately from Brighton's point of view, especially off the back of Kukurea, where Chelsea just went up and up and up because they don't want to lose him. They're not going to sit down at 55 or 65 or even 70 million and say, come and have a cup of tea and we'll talk about it. And here's our counter. And if you get it up to 80, we'll sell him if it's in these terms. Brighton will just say, nope. No again, no a third time. But then right at the end of the window, if Chelsea persist and put it to such a high number that it has to be spoken about, that will change the entire narrative. So this is not Brighton putting Caicedo in the shop window, quite the opposite. But it is Brighton accepting that if an astronomical offer comes in and it's right for the club and it's right for the player, he'll go. And as a result, we can't rule out that possibility with Chelsea, but we have to be very clear that it's not the scenario right now that Brighton would like to see happen. 
So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I guess the big thing for me comes down to, and someone's put this in in the chat here from Mikey uh, on Twitch. What do they value more, selling players or a European tour? And I think when you think about what would happen if we came down to the tail end of this transfer window, which what what do we have here? Nine days left. We sell Caicedo last day of the window. That could be the difference between European football for this club and 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 not playing European football, which comes with it a massive amount of branding potential, a massive amount of future income. Um, does that extra 10 million quid from Chelsea now balance that off? Like, is that worth it? Because to me, I say no to that. Um, so there's so many knock-on effects. And, and as you mentioned before, even if we take the Trossard deal, right, that deal doesn't happen unless Chelsea come in and gazump Arsenal for Madrid, because that then means that Arsenal have to move and it changes what was rumoured to be, and maybe you can confirm this, Ben, Spurs's or you know Daniel Levy's rather offensive opening bid for for Leandro Trossard of around twelve million, and and Arsenal come in and say we're not going to mess around like we just lost out on a player here. We're just going to give you the money for Trossard. Let's get it done, and it happened. Mm. Um, but there's so many dominoes that can fall in in this whole situation. And before you jump in, I, I did want to say one other quick thing just about the numbers because I think you put out here, you know, a, a, a number that Chelsea may have already sent over to Brighton. Uh, one key point here is that Bowley and Barber and Bloom, it's not like they're strangers at this point, right? They've had a number of conversations, number of dealings. So it's not like they have to size one another up. Once the, the, They know the numbers that they could get one another into a room. But you asked an interesting question to Paul Barber on your conversation, which was, how do you come up with these valuations for the players? And I guess I'll take that a step further and ask you, how do these numbers develop? Because we start hearing 60, we start hearing 70, you've thrown out even things like 80. I'm assuming this is a combination of your sources and then inferences from what you've heard out there. How do we as, I guess, listeners and fans start to take which ones are real and which ones are aspirational? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, just coming back to what was said before briefly, there's not really a scenario where, and fans might see it this way, and I understand why, Brighton would just sell Caicedo on the last day of the window, feel deflated about it, not have a replacement. So when I say it has to be right for the club, that also extends to the timing. So there's not going to be a strategic decision to let Caicedo go, say, in the final hours of the window, unless the market's moved in a way where they can bring somebody in or Deserby's happy with what he's got, or there's consensus at the club that from a football point of view, and or from a replacement point of view, and of course, the value of the deal, are all in favour of Brighton. And that ultimately is why January is a seller's market, not a buyer's market. So if they're not happy with the youngster they've brought in or the depth that they've got, and they're gutted to lose Caicedo, they won't lose Caicedo because they'll say, sorry, we've not been able to bring in a replacement. So everything has to add up, which is what makes it so difficult from Chelsea's point of view. Plus the fact that Caicedo has a new agent, which makes the situation a bit less messy because when Brighton signed him, there were multiple agents representing him. So it's a small fee, but there were lots of hidden costs to that deal, which is why Liverpool walked away. Now he's got a new incoming agent. And although they were telling the market that they were starting on January, the 18th they're not actually officially in yet which is also going to take oh, that's interesting out to the wire they will be we think next week but it's not formalized yet so Chelsea have to go club to club and then if they get a deal done they have to work out is it a deal with his old agents plural <laughs> or 
is it a deal with his new agent, which is Epic Sport? So ultimately, time is running out on this deal and it's a high value. And of course, Chelsea have already spent a lot of money as well. Do they want another big outlay now? And how's that going to impact a summer window, especially if they don't have Champions League football? And then in terms of the fee, I think it's really important to note, and I say this many times, fees are always disputed. And the reason for that is because they get out in the market and therefore buyer and seller want two completely different narratives. We saw it with Barcelona saying they lowballed and got Rafinha, whilst Leeds said it was exactly the same package as Chelsea paid when they had an offer accepted but subsequently didn't get the player. We've just seen it with Mudrik as well, where Shakhtar is saying, of course, Arsenal and Chelsea bid the same thing. But if you speak to Arsenal, they will not want to put it out there in the market that they placed a hundred million offer and failed for their number one target across the window. If you talk to Spurs and the failed bid that you mentioned around Trossard, they're going to keep it low because they failed. The last thing you want to do is say it's high. If you look at Enzo Fernandez, Benfica are saying it's release clause or nothing. And we thought Chelsea were going to pay above the release clause, but with a different structure. Chelsea then fail or they've stalled for now in their pursuit of Fernandez. And suddenly they say we only bid 85 million euros. And again, the reason for that is because Chelsea don't want it out there in the market that they somehow paid above a release clause and still didn't get a player. And Benfica don't want it out there that they considered selling a player for under the release clause because their fans will be absolutely outraged because he only just joined and he's a World Cup winner. So fees are always going to be disputed. Bids are also going to be disputed when they're rejected. Often the buyer and the seller deny they ever happened in the first place. But sometimes as a journalist, you know that they have because you've seen some form of evidence. So the way that you stand up fee is as simple as it sounds, going to as many sides as you can. And those sides can be buyer, seller, player, agent, but even others within the industry, such as another suitor. And your rival clubs will know just as much about Brighton as those around Brighton, because part of your market research is knowing what direction the market's going to move and clubs are going to move and you're all talking to the same agents. So a fee in terms of what is reported, is relatively difficult to ascertain at the beginning of a transfer. But as soon as a bid is placed, it becomes a marker. And then that marker helps you understand from perhaps information you haven't reported, but you had in your back pocket, or perhaps going forwards information you plan to report, that's when you start to shape it because you've got a starting point. And with that starting point, you start to understand, is it the same number that I was told before a bid was placed? And then you can trust Mm. the valuation from that source if they're directly involved in the negotiations. And similarly, if you start to think about a club's budget, the direction they're going to move in, what they want to pay, how they structure a deal, you can then start to talk and ask, well, you've just made that bid. How much do you think you can go up, will go up? And is it going to be an increase in number or is it going to be a change in structure? And that also is what people don't always understand. They cling to this Caicedo number of 75. But if, for example, Chelsea were to offer 65, all guaranteed, then it might be something that Brighton see as better than 75 if 75 was actually only 40 million up front and 30 million in add-ons that you're never going to reach. So structure is as important as number when trying to evaluate. And ultimately, the other thing in all of this is just before bids are placed, the club that is selling 
are going to put out the highest possible number because they either want to scare off the market or because they want to get the maximum amount. I mean, Brighton are never going to deny a story that says Moises Caicedo is worth 200 million because <laughs> if someone offers 200 million, they'll be delighted and say, thank you very much. You've met our valuation. Yeah, I so think even take- we would say okay to that one. Sure. Yeah. But I think that when you look at accuracy in a fee, it's usually down to the fact that things have already developed. So you may note that Paul Barber was saying when he spoke to me, which was perhaps what, about now 10 days ago, that no offer had been placed. But of course, I've gone to all sides. So I'm well aware what Chelsea are planning. I'm well aware what they're thinking about in terms of their valuation. And I'm well aware from the moving agent situation that there may well be a new party coming into play. So when you put that same question to all three sides, to the Chelsea side, to the Brighton side, and to the agent side, you start to get a sense of what might be bid, even though Paul Barber made it clear that he can't talk about a number because nothing has been bid. And mm-hmm. then the other thing as a journalist, as I said before, is you can go to the, for example, rival side i won't name the club although i'm out there on record as reporting that liverpool never bid for moises caicedo but you can go to an interested suitor i won't say who that interested suitor is but there were several premier league clubs that have looked at him over the last two windows and you can say to them i've heard another club are bidding x are you interested and they will say to you sometimes not just with caicedo Actually, the valuation of either Brighton or the valuation of a rival suitor is so high that we're not in the market. And that's another perspective, because if one club is telling you after 50 million, we don't see any value in a player like Moises Caicedo, then you immediately know they don't think they've got a chance at 50 million. And you immediately know another suitor is above 50 million. And therefore, you can logically conclude by also talking to Brighton that the fee is going to be well in excess of that 50 million. So you're piecing it together. But Mm. I would try not to put out a number unless it's being consistently stood up by more than one side, because that gives you the faith as a journalist that you're not just swinging in the dark. You're actually trying to assess a fair market value or somewhere close. But again, to reiterate, because it's not just number, it's structure, things can change. So it could well start at 70 million or 80 million, and it could drop to 65 million, but 65 million could be such a better structure. This is what happened with Fafana when he moved to Chelsea. And if that's the case, it's actually a reduced overall package, but maybe more gettable add-ons, maybe more preferable payment terms, and maybe still, even though that overall number is lower, a healthier guaranteed fee. So this is the movement of the market. These are the things that people explore. And as a consequence, you have to be very careful about just taking a set number in a set way without digging a little bit deeper. Yeah, and I think that's also why, as a fan base, we've been somewhat burnt in recent memory. And I'm specifically talking here about the Mark Cucurea situation and a one for Brizio Romano, where we had this kind of, these numbers were being thrown about as, as full truth. And here we goes and deals are done. And then we even had the Brighton social media team get involved and say the deal's not done and lag 24 hours. 
And I think as a group, we've now got semi-PTSD looking at certain things like this, where we start to think, well, hold on, who's being told this? And, and is that the truth now? Or are we getting fed different types of information? So it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective as how you kind of have to take a blended view of all of these different areas where you hear type, uh, certain things as opposed to, I guess, what it's... We don't know that from the outside, I suppose. Um, I know you're, you, firstly, you're, you're very busy. You've got a lot going on. Uh, I know you've got tons of games that you've had to look into today. I know we've got Juve that are playing and Ronaldo's been playing for his new club. Um, mind if I fire just a couple of other quick questions at you here? And it's mainly oh, just cool. around, you know, to finish up in terms of what does the, I guess what the future looks like. But the first question is, if you're a gambling man, does, is, Caicedo, is Caicedo at this club after January 31st? Well, I always try as a journalist not to give these gamble style. Give us a non-journalist answer. Well, it's not really that. It's that I've said many times, I think it's very irresponsible and clickbaity of journalists to go on a yes or a no or a likely or an unlikely or a percentage or a score out of 10 because Mm. my opinion in that sense is worthless. What I'm paid for and what my job is, is to provide you the insight and the direction of travel. And the direction of travel at the moment is that Chelsea will be back for Caicedo Mm. and another bid. And therefore, we have to wait and see what that number or structure is and whether it tests Brighton's resolve. But again, Deserby doesn't want Caicedo to leave. Barber doesn't want Caicedo to leave. Bloom doesn't want Caicedo to leave. New agent isn't in. Time is running out on the windows. So I would say that it is going to be difficult for Chelsea. But in the final days or hours of the window, money can also talk. And therefore, to say definitively it won't happen, even on a Brighton podcast, would be irresponsible. But the likelihood is that Caicedo will remain at Brighton, barring an astronomical offer, which hasn't to date been placed. And that is the situation. And it might mm. sound like sitting on the fence. It might sound as journalists, like sometimes we use too many qualifying words that we perhaps cover all bases. But that is simply because you always have to remember a transfer window in itself is unreliable. And therefore, if you are overly definitive before the process has run its due course, then you actually reach a scenario where you're reporting a narrative falsely. So there's two ways of engaging with the transfer window. You either take the blow by blow, but you've got to be prepared for this. Well, Chelsea is still preparing another offer. Don't know exactly what that's going to be at this point. When they hit a certain number, we see how Paul Barber and Tony Bloom react. And that is the current state of play. And anybody that kind of says it's a bit further along, anybody that says that they've already bid 80 million is ultimately jumping the gun a little bit. It could happen this evening. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in the next few minutes. But certainly as of lunchtime today, that was the state of play. And if you don't like that narrative of how the window works because it's frustrating, and it is, I'm sure, as a fan, then you have to try and convince yourself to not follow the blow by blow and take the second approach, which is go to bed, put a notification on your club channel or Chelsea's club channel in this case, and then wait for it to be officially announced. So there are some deals, Ronaldo to Al Nasser, which was one of the exclusives that I broke earlier in the window with CBS, where we knew from Al Nasser that they had a pre-agreement. We knew that they had a medical booked. We knew that Ronaldo was very interested by the package and we knew they wanted to announce it on New Year's Eve. So we were Mm. quite confident in that deal. But again, you're never going to say definitively because he suddenly turns up at Real Madrid training and you wonder whether a European team or something sensational might happen. Messi, again, is about to extend at PSG, but contrary to reports out there, he hasn't held those significant meetings to discuss the detail yet. So there is always room for a twist. But again, 
with Kaiseido, I don't encourage anybody to place bets generally. <laughs> but Brighton's stance remains that they are not planning for a January window, which means the entire onus is on Chelsea to try and change that situation. And right now, they haven't convinced Brighton. Okay. I think that's a completely fair answer, by the way, because I also think if we pose that question to the Brighton hierarchy themselves, they probably wouldn't. They'd probably give the same answer because they don't know what Chelsea are necessarily going to come back with. If Todd Bowley wakes up and he suddenly decides, no, we've got to go for it this season and here's what we're <laughs> going to do. You know, th- th- how are they going to know either? Uh, they're going to have to take that off for when it comes. Um if he does go, or we've lost Trossard and have only brought in a 19-year-old Swede and a very young Facundo Buonanotte who escaped a long-term injury last night when we were scared some some images that we saw there, but it looks like he's okay. Mm. What are, what names should we look out for, Ben? Uh, we've 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 seen names like Timothy Ware being thrown about, but also he's been uh, put alongside other other very big clubs. We've seen Nicolo Zaniolo, but he's been rumoured with Spurs, but we've heard Brighton's name being thrown in there as well. Um, any others that we should be looking at? Valentin Castellanos as well of, of, of NYCFC, we've heard. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is that Yasin Ayeri is a really good player, very much within Brighton's model. He's a progressive passer and he loves to get box to box. In addition to that, he's tenacious. He's quite composed on the ball. But how all that translates at Premier League pace remains to be seen. So speed of movement's good. Defensive discipline is relatively solid. Speed of thought is going to be key because obviously in the Premier League, you're more pressed it's more combative and that might take some time. But it's a classic Brighton signing, very much like Caicedo. I wouldn't call him like for like, an exact profile by any stretch of the imagination. But broadly speaking, there is a like for like positional sense. And for five million, you find yourself in another situation where if he succeeds, he might be worth 20, 30, 40 million going forwards in mm. the future. And Chelsea will come calling once right. again. But I think I reiterate what I said before. It's only my personal uh, opinion. It's informed to some extent by talking to sources, but I certainly wouldn't claim with this specific point to have exactly grilled Brighton off record on this. But I don't sense that if Caicedo goes, uh, Ayeri is the replacement or they're happy with what they've got. I sense that were a series of things to come together on the financials and the structure of the Caicedo deal late in the window, the sticking point will still be that Brighton wants somebody else. And then Mm. it becomes about whether they can get somebody late within the window. And some of the names that you've mentioned do have some substance. So Zaniolo, very good player, versatile. I still think he could be converted at times into a fullback, but it's not been his position. But that's something that Mourinho's tried. And also Antonio Conte is key on as well but he's a more creative minded playmaker at this stage he's fallen out of love with Roma and he's clearly fallen out with Mourinho as well and he wants to leave the football club so there's an opportunity there but Brighton will also have to assess the backstory there as well as the value do they want a player like that coming in with a bit of a chip on his shoulder two ACL surgeries Two ACL surgeries. In fairness, some of the injuries that he's picked up have been desperately unlucky rather than necessarily chronic or down to him. And others are a question mark. And therefore, we have to wait and see how Brighton look at that, how Brighton look at the character and the personality and delve into that backstory. And this is what Brighton do very well. They don't just sign footballers, they sign human beings as well. So they'll want to know, essentially, both sides of that story and kind of get a reference on the player. I used to work out for Roma in Trigoria 
when I was a consultant. I know Zaniolo actually lived next door to him during his second injury. Okay. I can firsthand that he's an excellent character. He is very applied in terms of his focus, but the injuries got him down and he hasn't quite got back to that same level of consistency. So now we have to wait and see how Brighton uh, view that. Were they to enter the race? But as you correctly say, it's Tottenham that are holding the talks at the moment, not Brighton. And the only real window of opportunity is that Tottenham are only looking at Zaniolo as a loan with an option to buy. And they're pretty fixed at the moment on wanting to keep that option. And that is because they're probably worried as well about this whole backstory about the players' injuries and even potentially that if they lose Antonio Conte, then what will the new manager think? So you want an out, but you also want an in. And that's the kind of greed of the option to buy where if you get the right price for it and you can proceed, then if all goes according to plan, you complete the signing. And if it doesn't, you say, thank you very much. Please return home now and you wash your hands with the player. Whereas Roma at the moment are saying it's got to be a loan with an obligation or it's got to be a permanent sale. And that will maybe, if Spurs walk away, provide a window of opportunity. So Brighton may say, you know what? Were we to lose Caicedo, now we are going to look at a player like uh, Zaniolo and, again, not like for like by any stretch of the imagination with Caicedo, but there is some crossover to a degree. You have to pay, if it's a permanent deal, something in the region of £30 million, though, which is quite a lot of money, quite a big chunk of the Caicedo fee. So I'd be surprised if Brighton went in that direction. But you're quite right to say they've been linked. And usually there's no smoke without fire, which means that he's probably one of a series of names on a shortlist that they're looking at in case they do have to move late within the market. I think that Weston McKenney is another player to keep an eye on. Who we could talk is also about Juve here. here as well, can't we? And their, their current situation. Yeah, 15-point deduction. The last time I had a look a couple of minutes ago, they were losing 1-0 to Atlanta as well at home. So it hasn't been a good few days for them. And Weston McKenney would love a challenge in the Premier League. Chelsea have looked at him. A few other clubs have been keeping tracks on him. And he is a little bit more similar to Caicedo. He actually is quite versatile. If you look at his career, he's played central midfield. He's been a box-to-box midfielder. He's been a defensive midfielder. He's been a wide player. He's been a forward. He's been a fullback. So that is very much of appeal to managers that want depth and quality, but he could definitely slot into that midfield. So there's a player that's available as well. Would he be interested in Brighton? Possibly not. No due disrespect to Brighton, but he's been playing in uh, Champions League with Juventus. and He wasn't interested in Villa. So is Brighton of appeal? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, I've said before um, that there's other midfielders that are maybe available in the summer, uh, like Scott McTominay won't excite Brighton fans, but that could be one to watch if they were to somehow stick with what they've got, lose Caicedo, and then look for a central midfielder a little bit later. Yuri Tielemans is another player mm. that is going to be available at the end of the season, but there could be a possibility that a club might choose to put down a small amount of money in the January window and then see whether that persuades Leicester to sell. And then the last thing that I would say, and this isn't as specific, I know, but just remember one thing in all of this, uh, which is that Todd Bowley loves a swap deal. And to get to that 75 or 80 million, if Chelsea try everything, then one of the things that they will try if they throw the kitchen sink at it is probably a swap deal. And then you start looking at a series of Chelsea players 
and even midfielders that might be available. So we have to wait and see whether that's factored in. If there's anybody within those Chelsea ranks, whether they're a direct replacement or whether they're simply a spare part at Chelsea that might be of appeal. One of those players could be Conor Gallagher. He's been starting for Chelsea, but there's a feeling that he's available in the market for about 35 or 40 million with interest from both Newcastle United and the club where he was on loan previously, Crystal Palace. We don't bring them up then. (laughs) (laughs) Then if you move away from uh, Gallagher, then you also have to look at Ruben Loftus-Cheek and you also have to look at players like Hakim Ziyech and Christian Pulisic. Now, Pulisic's injured and won't go during the January transfer window. And Ziyech, I think, is not somebody that Brighton would take because of the wages and they won't want to rock that structure. But I'm just giving you that lowdown to make it clear that there's four or five players at Chelsea in different positions that are surplus to requirements. And if they can somehow bring in Caicedo and reduce the fee and find Brighton a player they want and or a midfielder, then there may be a situation that, from Chelsea's perspective, they think it works. Then it flips and you have to work out whether Brighton are remotely interested in any of this. But I think that's a key factor in all of this, that if Chelsea are going to really try and hit the number, and it is still an if, then they might not just do that in terms of finances and in terms of structure. They might also try and reduce the cash aspect of the deal and see whether late in the window they can suggest a player to Brighton. And uh, it's unclear at this point if Brighton are remotely interested in any of these players. But don't be surprised if Chelsea try that tactic as well. Well, I'm a lot more interested in the idea, and our US listeners will be as well, the idea of Weston McKinney and Christian Pulisic as opposed to what I will wake up at 3am thinking about tonight, which is having Billy Gilmore line up against Scott McTominay and creating this sort of hellacious Scottish <laughs> centre midfield bearing. Um, ben, thank you. Thank you so much. I know we've kept you longer than we planned. Um, uh, you're doing a ton of interesting pieces at the moment. Uh, you, you mentioned your, your, your time in, in the Middle East. Uh, there's rumours with QSI and Spurs and Liverpool. Lots of stories bubbling under the surface there with the, the, the Qatari funds uh, buying into Premier League clubs. I'm sure people are probably going to will want to read up on that because that's becoming a, a running theme, I guess, in the Premier League. Um, where can people find you, read about you if they're not already following you and following CBS Galazzo? Yeah, great. Thanks for that opportunity. So Jacob's Ben is my personal handle. CBS Sports Golasso is the soccer arm of our coverage. So you see Champions League, Serie A there, Europa League. So hopefully we'll get some Brighton next season mm. in either the Champions League or the Europa League or the Europa Conference League as well. And then written work is on the CBS website, cbssports.com. Broadcast work, if applicable, when applicable, is on various things. We've got a daily soccer podcast, which is led by Ian Joy, and has got another journalist, James Benj and Jonathan Johnson, who are excellent too, that you should follow. And that's called House of Champions. And then we've got a rolling news channel for those of you that are in North America uh, called CBS Sports HQ. So we do a variety of things. We're growing every day. And as I say, 
I'll keep you posted during the remainder of the window uh, with anything Brighton uh, related. And I suppose the final thing for those that are maybe hearing this or watching it back and didn't see the Paul Barber interview is that is also available to watch on YouTube via House of Champions. So if you go to House of Champions, which is the podcast, click on the YouTube page. You can then locate the Paul Barber interview there. And again, the full write-up of the Barber interview is also on the CBS Sports website. Awesome. And that is a great interview. Please go go do watch that. It, it, it's, uh, ben posed some really interesting questions to Paul Barber and there's some, there's some good responses in there that every Brighton fan should, should really hear about. Ben, thank you, thank you, thank you again. We really appreciate it. Maybe when we sell Caicedo for 85, 90 million on January 31st, you can come back and tell us how uh, they're going to spend the money. Uh, but uh, in the interim, we will let you go. You're going to be a busy man for the next eight, nine days. So thank you again. All the best and good luck to Brighton for the rest of the season. Cheers. Bobby. Thanks, Ben. All right, that was fun. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I kind of let you take the reins on that one, but uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's some nice insights for for people to chew on there, I'm sure. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's always nice to get, I guess, the other side of the fence, if you like. Um, well, yeah, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, it's um, it's interesting to understand some of the the ways in which these rumors start to get created, right? And at what point they go over and away from. Because, you know, you, we see all these Twitter accounts out there and all these social media accounts where they, they'll just recycle whatever crap they hear or just yeah. like things they want to hear. Players going to go here and here. And the difference is that when you start to get into this tier of journalism, whereby it's it's what he talked about is this idea of, well, I need to have multiple verified areas. And then it might be that perhaps there's some level of moving some numbers around or some imagination to get to a point but I'm doing that based on the information I've gathered. So it's it's almost like he's taking a, well, it's, a it's, an educated approach around it. Well, yeah, it's like a, well, from what he's saying, it's a massive game of Cluedo, isn't it, really? Is that, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. you're trying to, I think sometimes from a from that perspective is you're trying to eliminate some information rather than obtain it. Because you know that set, like one, two, and three is real. I just need to eliminate two so I know which one's which. And it kind of feels like that a little bit um but it is interesting how that sort of all arises and i think yeah uh i'm sure many will be very glad when january's over as well it seems it seems very stressful well for us to watch but the other side as well is just you know the amount of information being thrown at you like you said a lot of recycled like sources a lot of um a lot of nonsense really is that a, a lot of what we have to do and, and a lot of what Brighton fans do as well is just wade through the utter nonsense that we see on Twitter to try and find the right information. Um, that is something that we definitely struggle with recently. Uh, so it's, it's nice just to hear some sort of how, how that works and how that's conducted behind the scenes before it's communicated to external sources. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, there's uh, there was some fun stuff in there. I, I, I'm still not over the McTominay brought up a couple of times uh that's, that's yeah I, that's, I, once I, once once was fine twice yeah, yeah. was a, yeah a little bit yeah much, i'm but. i'm jarred from that i truly <laughs> am jarred the idea of replacing moises caicedo with scott mctominay is is truly enough to just uh well, like, speaking uh, uh, speaking at twitter like you imagine the outrage um but uh, yeah i don't think that one would go down too well with the fan base it would depend a lot on the numbers wouldn't it <laughs> if that would you ever happen um if we said all this we've talked about kaiseido for about 45 minutes watch Bowley just bid 125 for matoma and we keep kaiseido and no one knows with these things we can but the good thing is ben knows more than we do uh, and that was very 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 clear 
and he uh, he gets gets stuff from the right places. And I think he's a, he's an incredible follow on Twitter. And uh, you know, another it, it means we're not so reliant on pretty much what's been the Andy Naylor, Brian Owen, and then whatever we get from you know when Fabrizio Romano's gaze goes on us every every now and then, and he decides to push an agent's agenda. So it's nice to have another voice out there. <laughs> um. Well, we've got a game to discuss, Craig. I don't, we've not. This is this is a bumper podcast. Everyone, strap in. Uh, yeah. we've, now, we've, we've now got to talk through the Leicester game. Uh, so, okay. you, this is probably has to be broken up into two commutes for people. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, let's so let's go back. I mean, I think we, we touched on the feelings of that Leicester game, and, and Ben gave his sort of like journalist opinion on how that game went down. What were your overall thoughts on it? Because I come away from that game as a of a combination of equally frustrated and relieved that we got a point from it yeah yeah and i think yeah before we get into the specifics i think for a for someone that may not have seen the game you know there's there's an etch of disappointment there given what we're capable of right now and and the form that we're in um but once once you sort of once you watch the game and i want to talk about the technical elements of the mid block and stuff like that because that's that's one thing but it it was a relief at the end that you know you're able to go away from home and yeah, this is a tough league and we're we're in we're in a position that we're not used to being in where people uh, i say people teams will counteract what we're doing as opposed to us being reactive um and i think that was a classic sense of yesterday and what happened in battling a team that is purely set up to stop us as opposed to beat us um and there's there's no there's no disrespect there to Leicester whatsoever you, you're talking about a Brighton team that is scoring at will 17 goals in five games right if I was Brendan Rodgers I'd be doing exactly the same right you stop them from scoring and we, we've always got a chance we, we're used to that from years ago um but you know it, it was a it was a weird game to watch and uh, we'll, we'll get into it I think I was relieved with an additional point away from home we're still unbeaten in 2023 i know that doesn't really mean a lot there's only been a couple of games but if you keep this run going and the mentality of the players to not know when they're beaten i think there's a few positives that we can take from yesterday as well and the fact i did like that ben also picked up on the fact that and other that other people are seeing this outside the club that this side has a resiliency resiliency to it that that, that we didn't have under Graham potter and, you know, I think uh, Mikey's even brought this up in the chat as well here. Like, we wouldn't have got past a team sitting back like that under Graham Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think so either. I, I think you go a goal down under Potter, you, you, know, and you concede a second and you just think, all right, when when are we going to go home? Um, but we'll get into it. The other thing I'll say just beforehand, though, is I watched a couple of like uh, fan vlogs and things like that. The game, the away atmosphere was incredible. Uh, we had a lot really, of fans really there. Good. They were loud as hell. Um, awesome stuff to, to hear, even from afar. I, yeah, I heard there was a few train issues between like getting up there as well. So, yeah, that's I think as expectant now of of the UK rail service. But um, <laughs> but but yeah, I think to to be up there in the droves as well when we consistently have those issues in the UK, we're we're lucky <laughs> to 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 not be a part of that. Um, but but yeah, I'm. It, it was a very good showing, and they, you could tell on the on the commentary and and as you watched it as well, it was really good. Yeah, um, let's get into the actual the the lineups and the structure of things. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, structure wasn't changed, but uh, a 
couple of significant switch outs since we last recorded. I think it was at least uh, we, we had the horrible news with Levi Colwell is going to be out with, a, I think it's a groin strain, isn't it? Was it something like four, six weeks? Yeah. A muscular injury is about as vague as you can possibly get. Yeah. So um, if it's four to six weeks, it is a blow. I, you, I imagine saying that at the start of the year. Um, yeah. The, you know, yeah, he, two changes, wasn't it? With, with Van Hecker coming in, I think. And, uh, well, well back up front. Well back in for, for Ferguson as well. Um, well. We'll get into that. But it seemed like a forced change at centre-back and obviously a genuine change up front with Welbeck coming in and starting for the first game in a while. Um, and, yeah, I, I will get into individual performances, but I think I think the, f- the first half was very, very tactical in, in how we sort of played against what was a very sat-back and a very narrow Leicester block. Um and it was one of those halves where I really know <laughs> what to think, but uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on on the, the tactical battle around it, but also just it was so hard to understand how we were going to get through or sort of the chances we were making. It was a very, I wouldn't say end-to-end, but it was just a very drab sort of first half with each team trying to figure each other out. Yeah, I, I, I think you made an astute point when we were just talking about the game broadly, which is Brendan Rodgers, for, for anything you want to say about the guy, he is fairly decent. At the, like, he's been doing this a while. Uh, and you might not like the look of what they did yesterday from an excitement standpoint, but it was smart. It was, it was everything that I don't want to see Brighton face. Sit back, wait, play the counter, uh, and and be as organised as you can and frustrate, which is just not the thing we want to play against. And I think we saw that, and it didn't feel like we had necessarily a lot of the uh, ability to open up that organised defence, especially when uh, Lalana uh, went down uh, a little while into the game and we lost his ability to drop back and find a pass and we had to move people about and Mac had to push up and it, it just didn't go particularly nicely there. Um, the, 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 I guess the, the, the my main note that I had for the first 20 minutes of the game was literally Leicester and making the game boring. That was, that was my big takeaway yeah. from the start of the game. And, and this team has lost four on the trot, right? Had, yeah. Like lost every single game since the World Cups. And, and there's there's an element of stop the rot there. And it, like you said, like Brendan Rodgers isn't a fool. I, I, he's not he's not a bad manager per se. Like he has been around the business for a while. The element of stopping the rot and trying to get a result by any means necessary is something that you have to do every now and then. Um, and I think I agree with you that it was it was arduous to watch should we say um in yeah. that you know you could see what we're trying to achieve and tifo and everyone we've, we've spoken to death around making those artificial transitions and and the, the zerbi la pause or whatever you want to call it um but whatever we were putting down they weren't picking up so it it was very much a case of okay let's try and play through it then and it it, it generated a very frustrating 20 to 25 minutes and then uh, the, the biggest flashpoint for the first 25 minutes was about 23 minutes in. We had a ball played in. It might have been a corner, actually. Van Hecker got his head on it. And it was way harder to miss the goal than Mm. score. So it was genuinely quite impressive that he managed to angle his head downwards and the ball flew upwards. Um, 
that <laughs> sort of, I know we'll discuss before because there's been some outrage with a lowercase outrage around Van Hecker as uh, performance yesterday. I think that sort of summed it up a bit. Uh, he could have broken that deadlock and we play a very different game, uh, but he didn't. And, and thankfully, a handful of minutes later, uh, the Japanese god <laughs> did. Uh, the, the MVP. Yes. Uh, what do you think about that goal? Uh, <laughs> it's outrageous. And, and I just... It just turns into, you know, we're fortunate to have some very good results. So it's very easy to come onto this pod and go, this is outrageous. This is outrageous. This is so good. But Matoma's becoming that guy now where it, it just, it doesn't surprise me anymore that he's able to do this. Right. And there's, and I think obviously people who are listening or, or sort of have chopped this into two or three because this is a bumper pod. Like speaking to Ben about just, um the the outside world understanding or maybe acknowledging what Brighton are doing. And I think Matoma's at the forefront of that at the moment, where everyone is going absolutely nuts about how you sign this Japanese winger for three million pounds. And he's so clinical, he's so quick, he always makes the right decisions. And then when things aren't going your way after 25 minutes of trying to trying to break down a Leicester team. He skips past two people and puts in the top bins. And and it, it's just, it is silly. And I think there's no limit and he is capable of that sort of stuff. But we're seeing it so consistently now where it's just borderline unstoppable. Uh, it's just, and, and good for him as well. Like, it's just outrageous. It really is. We've fallen into a trap where the we expect the unexpected from him now. Mm-hmm. And when he has a game where he doesn't defy plausibility, uh, we're going to be shocked because we're now seeing this guy. And by the way, earlier in the game, about 13 minutes in, he was basically at left back and he danced around three players in our own like final like, back third and then just managed to get us out of trouble. His, his ability at this point already, and how many games did he play for this club? Oh, I mean, it's what seven. Because he wasn't eight. starting for the first how many games? He wasn't yeah. starting. Uh, I, I, I genuinely cannot believe his his what his ceiling is. And I was I was on an Arsenal podcast yesterday, mm. uh, uh, talking about Trossard. And this was a this this live stream that they're a fairly big one. There were like a thousand people commenting, and almost all of them when we started up were like. We give us Matoma instead of Trossard, <laughs> and they would have changed their tune today. He was uh, well, yeah, he was fairly good, but at the same time, I, I basically said, "You don't get Trossard from us in January if we don't have Matoma do what he's doing, because mm-hmm. you just don't have the ability to give him up at this particular point." And uh, I cannot believe that a guy that was on the bench that we brought back from USG that was a big question mark is now. For me, the the most integral spark to what this team is able to do in games, because who knows what this game is and what happens if he doesn't smash that one in the top right-hand corner 26 minutes in. So 14 matches, seven starts, and he's got, yeah, four goals and assists. Seven starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, FB ref, by the way, if this is wrong, there's not yeah, me. Blame, blame them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, it's just... A revelation is the word, isn't it? Just, I mean, 
he's he is very good we could spend the next 20 minutes talking about him if we really wanted to it's now just a matoma fan podcast yeah yeah yeah. i mean we've already got the shirt in the background but (laughs) so and you you do you have to remember as well for the second goal as well in that he he's the one that poked out test opinion to cross it in Mm. like he he is doing that work and he right he's so quick but he's he runs all the time and just the stamina there as well, the decision-making, being clinical in front of goal. Like, there's not really much more you can ask from this guy at the moment. Um, no. It is it is silly. And I think, yeah, Danny Ward had no chance. Nobody has any chance. He would stick two goalkeepers in there if you wanted to. Um, I don't but, think some of them can reach to there where the ball went. No. <laughs> there's Fabian Barthez, no chance. Um, the, the, a couple of, I don't know why he sprung to mind. A couple of minutes later... Uh, Adam Lallana went off uh, injured and it's not the first time we've said that won't be the last time we've said that mm. uh, and no Adam, news no news at the moment right no so. I, don't, I haven't heard anything uh, turns I don't know if we talked about this before but it did come out that he was the one that Trossard yeah. has the training bust up with uh, and he came out if you haven't seen this there was a there was an interview that Adam Lallana gave the last week where he was asked about Trossard and he basically just I mean he didn't respond like they were best friends. Uh, he's like, the club's going to be fine without him. That's <laughs> yeah. essentially his vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, he, also, he also did a, an interview with Graham Hunter as well. I know that's been banded about a few bits on Twitter and wherever you get your socials from, but that's also a, a good listen as well for those that once, once you're done here, please don't turn this off. Um, but when, once you're, once you're done here, there's, there's a 30 minute interview with him just uh, around, all things Brighton and it speaks a lot about McAllister and Deserby as well, um, which is also good. But yeah, I think back on point, it's it's a shame to lose him. I think people forget how important he is to this team, just as a as a leader. Um <laughs> telling Trossard to go somewhere else is probably one of them. Um but but also just losing him on the pitch, like you said before, be it that that sort of third man dropping into that midfield and being able to spray a pass and and his his awareness, his spatial awareness is so good. Um, you know, it, he was missed on that pitch. And I think from that point, we we lost our way a little bit. Yeah, I think it, it is, he's been an easy one to uh, single out in 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 the past and say, uh, what does Lalana bring to the team? It's great that he's a leader, but you saw what happens when he's not around in this game. As, as, as you say, you, you saw a good chunk of football there where it didn't look like we were really breaking anything through or breaking anything down. And that's the difference that he makes. And it allows other players to be able to do, do their thing better as well. So he went off and, and out, uh, your, your number one best bud, Joel Veltman, came on. And um, I think we got a bit of a glimpse as to why Joel Veltman maybe isn't currently playing. Because mm. uh, not uh, 10 minutes later, Mark O'Brien, who had only come on three minutes prior, decided to slam home a goal that was fairly comical in its defending overall. Yeah, yeah. Took you back to the, the Duncan Duffy days, didn't it? I think there was there was a lot of bodies being thrown and, and you love you love to see it, right? But I think two different rebounds and falling to a fourth Leicester player in the box. Probably a handball from Veltman as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a strange one. We were we were getting caught on the counter a fair bit in that first half, and I don't think we were getting back quickly enough. And I think Feltman was probably one of those. Um, I I hate 
again with Van Hecker as well. I, I don't want to sort of move on from from Veltman. He was subpar yesterday as well. But I think Van Hecker had this um, this notion to storm out and come out of his. I think is designated area, if you like, in, instead of just staying back. There was one or two times where he thought he could win the ball by going forwards and then didn't, didn't win yeah. it and put us into a precarious position there where actually we are facing one of those. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think one of those was that first goal was, you know, being a little bit out of position, being beaten by a, a couple of passes and maybe over committing to winning the ball back um, and just leads to a very scrappy goal. But it's a, it's a goal nonetheless. And, we need to be better than that. Yeah, maybe we'll talk briefly a little bit more about Van Hecker here as well, because, uh, you know, to the eye, he did make some mistakes yesterday uh, in, in the manner in which you sort of described them there. It's a weird one. Uh, and I'm personally, I'm not worried about him. He's, he's 22 years old. Like This is his first start, right? Uh, I mean, it's. I think Adam Webster was running out with the under-21s today, uh, was on the bench yesterday. Clearly, he's not back yet ready uh Levi Colwell plays all things considered but um from a, from a statistical standpoint I think he was basically told to try and keep things as simple as possible mm-hmm. but if I reel off a little couple of little bits of data here it might, it might surprise some of the listeners just in terms of what he actually did so total tackles from us yesterday no player succeeded in more than two tackles Van Hecker had two so he was tied top. No player had more than four interceptions. Most interceptions, Van Hecker, four. Uh, no one had more than two clearances. The only player that had two clearances was Van Hecker. And from a passing standpoint, he had the highest pass accuracy on the entire team at 96% almost it, on 95 passes. Uh, out, I think we saw some, some youngster errors on a nervous first start, but we saw the fundamentals of an interesting player there. And he, in my mind, along with Danny Welbeck, were easily scapegoated in this game. Mm-hmm. And I'm not buying into that. Uh, I think it. I think we're fine. Uh, and when he removes those mistakes from his game, I think there's an interesting player there. Uh, I agree with you. I'm not worried about it at all. Um, you put him up against a championship team and you win 5-1 and he doesn't look out of place, right? Um, yeah. He goes, first first Prem start, you know, it's, it's a bit nervy. It is what it is. Um, he's He is still young as well. Like, people make mistakes. It's your first start. Like, I'm not worried about it at all. I think it's, like you said, it's, it's easy to, to draw out the negatives um especially you know if we come away with a last minute winner right if ferguson scores the winner rather than the draw we're not having this conversation um yeah we're, we're saying that you know van hecker done well when we won the game so there's there's hindsight's a lovely thing uh not not worried at all i think yes yeah. one of those where he's used to the system he's a ball playing defender uh he'll get used to it he's going to be a very very competitive center back to have in this lineup if you also cater to the fact that cole will may not join us permanently on you know after this season very likely won't let's yeah. be honest so yeah. you know van heck is going to be one of those important center backs he's going to be one of those three in in webster and dunk and you give him a couple of starts you see how he is um if he continues to improve then i don't see i don't see an issue at center back not long after the half it wouldn't be a brighton game without some ridiculousness around <laughs> penalties or refereeing or VAR 
Uh, I'm annoyed that we have to talk about this one, but let's talk about it very quickly. Danny Welbeck gets the ball in the box and he gets tackled unfairly and fouled, goes down and nothing happens. What are your thoughts? Is it the same with probably 99.9% of people that are watching this? Um, with the, the 0.1% probably being Lee Mason. Um, but just, it, I don't know why you're trying to play advantage there. If, you, if you're in that sort of ref's position, right? Is that if you're, if Welbeck has been fouled, and VAR should say that that's a foul, because we can all see it, and it is a foul, then if the ref has missed that foul and has allowed play to continue and allowed a shot from outside the box, I don't know why VAR is not overturning that. It's so, and I get a genuine referee error. Mistakes happen; they're human too. Whatever you, whatever you like to think. Um, but it's, I don't know why you're not pulling that back on VAR. I think this is this is a VAR error. This is the ref has missed it, and VAR is there to correct an error, clear and obvious error, shall we say? And it hasn't. So I don't know, and I would like to know why it why it wasn't because the only other thing is is that they then declared after looking at it on the video that it's not a foul in which case that's absurd yeah because we even got a nice little glimpse didn't we i think at lee mason looking at some monitors and some other clown that was there uh i didn't i no one didn't think that was a penalty after a, a second this is the whole purpose that you have a video review system because these types of ones you you can I, I don't, the referee fine whatever uh, you can let the game you can you can play the advantage maybe you don't see the clip that's fine that's why we have VA that's why we have video exactly, exactly. I, I I can't I, I don't understand how anyone and from what I've seen and this has been brought up in the chat as well even most Leicester fans have even admitted that it was a foul uh, Deserby was interviewed after the game after he got his yellow card from this and he asked the journalist what did you think he was like yeah I think it's probably a foul mate I said well how do a bunch of us idiots see it as a penalty and the one fool that's paid to, and, to make the decision and trained and trained suppose, supposedly allegedly yeah I just uh, it's I don't I don't want to uh, raise my blood pressure anyway stupid but, I, but the the overarching consequence of that is that it stays at 1-1 and two or three minutes later, correct me if I'm wrong, they go up to the other end and we poorly defend a corner to allow Harvey Barnes to score. Yeah, it was about 10 minutes later, but in between yeah. that as well, we had the return of Solomon March, original edition. I put it out of my mind. Yeah, yeah. So Matoma does his MVP type stuff dribbles around like five people. The ball comes to Solly March in a better position than a penalty, a better position than a penalty. It's further forward than the penalty spot. And it, this was one that Harry Kane would have been proud about. Mm. Uh, I don't know where that ball ended up, but um, it probably bumped some poor it's, soul on the head. Outside. No, it still hasn't come down. Yeah. It's remarkable finish in a bad way. Mm. yeah I, and just you know it they were saying he slipped and uh, that's fine but you know it's such a golden opportunity again and um again it's one of those where it's oh, okay 
<laughs> like nothing is and after that point it was like okay the penalty shout and now this was like this is absolutely not going our way and anything that we can uh just scrap from this game or, or try and take something from it uh because clearly uh something was not in our favor but yeah I, I completely blocked that one out and uh it's just yeah he's in the form of his life and then it does that i just yeah i hope it doesn't knock the confidence because again we think, and I, I think, that he's a confidence player and he needs to sort of pick himself up after that to continue where he left off. All he's done is he's just mugging the people off that brought him in from fantasy after he's done all these performances. <laughs> and then he's like, you know what? Nah, let's let's screw with him a little bit and then I'll play well uh, against Liverpool and Bournemouth. I suppose Bournemouth for Premier League. You, you, must have, you must have brought him in then. I didn't. No, <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I... I <laughs> I'll, I'll wait to see a larger sample size from Solly before it burns me again. Um, uh, not, a, not a few minutes later than that, we had Lewis Dunk with a, a very un-Lewis Dunk-like absolute slide and a missed tackle that, that opens up Leicester to a chance that arguably could have put them up 2-1. Uh, but what it did give them was a corner. And mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like this is probably one that would make the Zerbi rage because it was defended at a Sunday league level. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, it's hard to blame someone when it's a corner with 15, 16 bodies in the box, but uh, just a knock on to the back post. I, I don't think it was covered sufficiently. Van Hecker was at the back there, but it yeah, wasn't I, really on him, was it? No, no. I think it's, it is what it is and it's very poorly defended. And like you said, I think any manager has a right to be, very annoyed at, at how we've done that and after the penalty shout and the glaring miss that then happens a couple of minutes later and you're like okay so uh how do we how do we pick ourselves up from here and i think we we made a couple of changes after that um with <laughs> with ferguson who we'll talk about um but also Tarek lamptey later on as well yeah uh maybe a decent point to bring up danny welbeck here came off at 66 yeah. minutes for evan ferguson not one he's gonna that's gonna live long in Danny Welbeck's memory, really. Coming off of that extraordinary goal last week from him, he mm-hmm. was fairly anonymous. And again, I know it's it's easy for the people that now want to see Evan Ferguson play every game. Again, he's really young. I know he looks incredibly exciting. We're gonna talk about him. We're excited as well. But th- this this might not just be Evan Ferguson's performances every single game Danny Welbeck has proved that he's he's very good but he was marked out of the game today he was playing a sole striker on he was surrounded uh so I felt a bit bad for him yeah yeah isolated isn't the word um I think yeah just I'm looking at stats on the other screen but 20 touches in 65 minutes um it's slim pickings for him uh yesterday and we we can attribute that to the, the Leicester tactics and containing us. Like, I think there was, it was a, a very good defensive effort from them, you know, despite it being two all, that seems like a little bit of a, a paradox there, but um, I thought largely was, yeah, completely marked out of the game and there was very little influence he could do. It's, it's one of those, I, again, same with the Van Hecker. I don't want it to be this sort of exercise where we didn't win. Therefore the only two people that we brought in as changes are, are the impact. Um, 
I think it was just a good defensive effort from them to keep him out of the game, and, and they did it completely. Um, so much so that we had to rely on an 18-year-old to, to mix it up instead. So, uh, yeah, not, nothing against him. It was just a bad day at the office. I say it, I wouldn't even say a bad day at the office, just a tough day at the office because he was just marked to oblivion. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned uh, Tarek Lamptey came on. Uh, looked pretty. Uh, there was a couple of flashes there from from Tarek Lamptey. There was one passage of play, seventy nine minutes in, where it was incredible football. He was dancing around everywhere. There was some back heels going along. It was great stuff, and he just like curved it over the bar. It was a weird shot. But just prior to that, we also had a chance where I think it was Mac that played in Solid March on the left hand side. The March of the last three, four games slots that one home and he just smashes it straight at Danny Ward. Another chance that went begging. And between those two, you kind of felt to yourself, this is going to be one of those, isn't it? This is one of those games where we feel like we're probably the better side throughout. We've we've run the, the whole show and they've just done a smash and grab on us. About 83 minutes in, we saw our World Cup winner basically go around about four people uh, and smashed. It was pretty pretty insane, wasn't it? Because he was fairly quiet the rest of the day, wasn't he? It wasn't his best performance, but that was some quality. Yeah, and there's him being pushed up into that 10 role. Obviously, Lalana came off. Gross was in the pivot with Casado, which means Mac is at the 10. Um, again, competing against a, a block of that kind and a very defensive tactic. Um very slim pickings, uh, likes to run at his man. And I think we saw that at 83 where, yeah, it just goes to through a couple of people. Um, I just hit it straight out of Danny Ward, but on an, on any other given day, that, that slots into the bottom corner, doesn't it? And and you think that's that's a World Cup winner. So, you know, it was that knocking at the door. And like you said, it was just, that's not, nothing's going in today. And I thought at 85 minutes, I was kind of half resigned to it that, you know, we'll huff and puff, but the, the, the house isn't going. So, uh, so yeah, I'm upstep, you know, the, the prodigy, the, the star boy, shall we say, um, without getting people excited. No, let's, let's get excited because uh, knowing full well that we know all of the things we said and he's, he's young and this could, this could end, but what a goal! What a header! Uh, and he just keeps seems seemingly can just keep doing this. And and by the way, this wasn't the only thing that he did when he came on. Like oh, I feel like we're going to get bored of saying the fact that this this guy can seemingly do it all. He's got really good movement, really good strength, can back into players really really well. Great touch, great passing ability, uh, good knowledge of where he should be and how to play in other players. Um, and this was not a ball comes into box and he's like standing at the six yard line. This was he, his movement of watching Estupinians run and run and run to get onto that header where no one else was running to is the thing that we just simply haven't had. And the thing that Danny Welbeck doesn't give to you either, which is this absolute massive dude picking up and playing a number nine role and knowing where the ball's going to be and Galantz is an incredible header in. Yeah. And it it's one of those where it's almost like you can't teach that in that he just has this, this knack for being at the right place at the right time. Obviously that's not true. You know, this guy has something special without sort of just bigging him up too much, but he, he's part of that sequence of play where he wins the ball back or helps to win the ball back. It pimbles out. Matoma puts it out to Estepinian. 
he's at the 25, 30 yard mark when Estepinion picks up that ball. Um, and just the, you can see the movement for those that do have the highlights, but just wandering into that area where he knows Estepinion is going to put the ball, but not only being in the right place, but then directing a header from 13 yards out to beat them at the at the far post is it's just very good skill and we haven't seen someone like this for a while it's very glenn murray-esque if i dare say it but just the the ability to be in the right place at the right time and have the i guess the the skill to to finish it off as well and again people are starting to take notice i think there's there's the matoma sort of hype as well but this guy has five goal involvements in four games it's it is crazy how fast he started um and like you said right this right the start when we started talking about him it's important to remember how young he is and how he needs to be nurtured rather than sort of thrown to the wolves because this purple patch will eventually end um and he'll go through games where he isn't as effective but we know what he's got and we need to be careful of that there's a there's a weird situation that could arise here whereby we're in a universe that we are, we've spent all this time waxing lyrical about, as you've mentioned, like Matoma and we can't stop saying good things about this guy, McAllister, Caicedo, the whole other gang. And there's a future where the best player out of this whole bunch is Evan Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he redefines this, this team because as we've seen everywhere, the, the the player that you really 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 want to have is you is you is you want to have that goal scorer and how we've missed one, um, yeah. Let let's see what the future is for this guy, but it, it's looking really really bright, isn't it? And I just don't think there's there's another way in which he could have even just positioned that header to go in. Uh, it had to be that like perfectly glanced header into the corner there, and I didn't even when I first saw it, I didn't believe it. I thought it had gone wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just stunning and then to cap it all off our very 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 smart world cup winner said you know what i'm gonna get my ban for picking up yellow cards so i missed the bournemouth game and i don't miss the palace game <laughs> uh so mac uh, mac a bit of cynical challenge i did get scared at the end when they had that free kick i was very I very guess. worried that was going to coil in the corner i said that i i'm it's such a perfect area isn't it you know and, and madison's up there in free kick takers at the moment, at least. I know he's just come back from injury and stuff, but one of, he's one of the last people I would choose to have over a free kick against us. So, uh, yeah, very happy to see that just bash against the wall and um, back towards the halfway line. I was worried about that, actually. Uh, there's a chance I've been informed here that maybe the yellow cards reset after the Bournemouth game. So McAllister's either a genius or an idiot. Uh, uh, either way, he's fairly good at football. <laughs> but we don't ever get Bournemouth, and hopefully we can survive, considering Bournemouth look like... Uh, they sort of just discovered what football is about three weeks ago. Um, man of the match thoughts overall. I, I feel like this one's going to be fairly easy, but maybe I'm wrong. Who do you think? Oh, I, it's fairly easy for me. I think the only, well, I say the main creative outlet for the entire game in, in Matoma, I think it just kind of has to be. Uh, I mentioned it on the pod last week is that we, last season we had Basuma as that sort of, default man of the match unless someone does out something outrageous and I think Caicedo was that at the start but judging by the way Matoma's playing at the moment he he sort of just cemented himself as this outstanding player that's hard to look at anyone else um 
especially when you do something like that in the first half and just where he is on the pitch and the way he helps out this whole team. Um, that left side is just so dangerous as well. I, it is Matoma for me again. We can rack them up at the end of the season, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's top. Yeah, uh, you can. we can sweep it. Uh, he's just... Yeah, he's fairly good at football. Uh, the, uh, I'll give an honourable mention out there as well to Purvis Estupinion, who... Mm-hmm. To assist... Has, uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say he's been quietly very good over the course, but two assists is not particularly quiet. He's just loudly quite good uh, and has been fairly impressive and, and just a, a consistent just freight train up, up that left side. That There's a reason why a lot of our play gets dictated statistically. We're, we're way more over-indexed on left-sided movement than we are on right-sided. With all due respect to right-back Pascal Gross playing into Solly March, and obviously we know Solly's been great outside of this game, but that Estupinian Matoma uh, grouping is so, so strong. And imagine thinking that from last season. We're like, oh, by the way, you're going to lose... Kukure uh, and Trossard, and you're going to have a better version. How do you? It's belief. It is. It is mad. It's and that quality. I think they'll do danger and they'll they'll inflict damage against any team that we play against. Because I, I just think that that pairing is so good. And I think if you look at the squad and how they play, especially when you play Gross at that right back role, is that because everything's going down the left, you can bring Gross in into that midfield and over overrun the midfield. So it's it's almost like the right isn't that important when your left side is so good. Um, so so what that means for the team is really you can overload the midfield and the left and you could kind of quietly not worry about the right. Um, and whenever you do, it'll be a one-on-one situation with March who's in the form of his life. So it lends itself well, I think, when Estepinion's being double-marked, Matoma's being double-marked, you bring in your inverted wing back into the centre and you just create something from there instead. It, it's just one of those really nice things to watch. Um, but in order for that to work, you need to have two elite players on that left-hand side, which is what they're playing at at the moment. They're incredibly good and just so fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. More to come. Uh, we are playing our friends Liverpool again in the FA Cup uh, next Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the following Saturday, we're back in Premier League action at home to Bournemouth. So two home games. Uh, I don't, again, cliche to say, but I don't know which game I'm scared of more here uh, in the sense that... I don't know. I don't yeah, know. you know, like 3-0 against Liverpool last time. So that, but maybe we beat them and then banana peel Bournemouth, but remains to be seen there. But you, you fancy... There's potential for a little FA Cup run if we can do similar to what we did against Liverpool last time. Big if. Uh, and then Bournemouth, where you really want the three points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we were all a little bit uh, peed off around exiting the Carabao Cup because we thought that was actually somewhere where we could get quite far. Um, I think we'll probably think the same with the FA Cup. You're on 31 points from 19 games. I mean, you know, we're halfway through the season on 31. I don't. And again, touch wood, I think we're, we're looking up rather than down in the league table as it stands. So the focus tends to shift towards the Cups and what damage you can do there. Um, I guess it, it depends what Liverpool shows up. <laughs> I mean, if it's, it's the Liverpool that showed up against us and yesterday for that matter, then I think we're in for a good chance. But it, it just it does depend on what what version shows up. And I think for the Bournemouth game, I'm the same as you. We've, we've been Brighton fans for long enough to know that 
we should be worried about it. So, um, yeah, so I guess we'll see. I mean, unbeaten still, we take a point. That probably feels a little bit like a win to the players with the late equaliser too. Um, you know, you, you take that good good vibes and you, you move forward, right? Um, but it's two tough games I th- and there's no easy game. So I think people will correct me. But yeah, I think we can look at that Liverpool game try and get through into the next round because I think there's a good chance of getting pretty far if we do given the draw and what's happened there and the Bournemouth game it is a banana peel it's a team that is going to probably set up to frustrate us again uh, and we need to be aware of it yeah yeah we shall see and and between now and that Bournemouth game a transfer window will have closed uh we're not going to talk any more about transfers because we, we we had a big chat with Ben obviously mm. prior to this uh this team might look a little different it might look Exactly the same, in which case that would be a big win in my mind because let's carry this group of players to the end of the season, do the unthinkable, and then we'll reset in summer and and, and have a look at what that, that team looks like next season. Um, so a lot can happen there. Funny enough, we haven't even properly talked about the Trossard situation and the fact that you know our top scorer left one of the best players of the last few <laughs> years. Uh, but you know at this point, he's gone. Can't be bothered. Sick of him. Well, I think, uh, was, it, was it next next Sunday was the game? Against Liverpool, 29th. Yes. We've got got one more transfer talk in us, haven't we? So, uh, Oh, God, yes. Sorry in advance. We've got one more where we can have that. The final, the dying (laughs) embers of speculation with two days before the end of it where we, you know, it gets really silly. Mm. Yeah, that's that's the the beauty of it. Uh, I think, Craig, anything else? We've been talking for an hour and 40 minutes. Some people may have actually expired during this podcast. but uh, Yeah, I would yeah. be surprised. Uh, no, no. Honestly, I think we can, we'll can. we pick up the Trossard thing. I think you were on uh, the Guna talk, wasn't it? So we can drop the link there where you, where you spoke yeah. about Trossard as well. Um, so if you want any Trossard talk, go and find it there where Adam went through it. Um, otherwise, yeah, not too much. Still unbeaten. Sixth in the table. It's outrageous. Uh, it just enjoy it while we can i think we always say that just enjoy the positives there's some positive to take from that game um we won't dwell on the negatives uh we mentioned them but we won't dwell on them <laughs> uh but yeah otherwise it's another point um on the road and then uh we'll pick up at bournemouth in the league and i think the funny thing is we sort of hope that the game tomorrow between fulham and tottenham it's maybe a it's a draw yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then we <laughs> we can we can tackle our way to fifth position in the near future so what an absurd thing to say everyone thank you so much for for, for going through this with us that the war and peace of brighton high valvian podcasts uh thank you again enjoy your week enjoy the liverpool game we'll speak to you afterwards cheers for listening thank you